Well, welcome, Devils fans, to another episode of our Speak of the Devils podcast. I'm Chris Westcott, filling in for Maddie Lachlan, and I've got, of course, Amanda Stein as my co-host today. And uh, Amanda, it's uh, going to be a good one, I think, because we actually get to talk a little bit more hockey, uh, kind of peel back the curtain I've been saying all week uh, into uh, what it's like in player development. And I think that's really key for the future of this New Jersey Devils organization because they've done a really good job of accumulating young talent. Where does it go from here? Well, exactly. And, you know, you do a good job drafting, but it doesn't end there until a player is in the AHL or the NHL. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes that has also really developed over the last couple of years, maybe last five, 10 years or so in terms of franchises really focusing in on the players that they've drafted in all rounds of the draft, whether you're first or seventh or, or in between. So I'm really looking forward to talking to these, you know, our, our, our two guests today because they happen to also be probably the first two people that I met within the franchise when I joined on day one. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with them. Yeah, the two, the two people you're talking about, of course, are player development coach Eric Weinrich and player development coach Patrick Rissmiller. And, you know, Weinrich is interesting. He's played a lot of hockey over the course yeah, over of his over a thousand career. games, yeah. And, and, you know, he played in the Olympics. He represented Team USA at the World Championships, the World Cup. I mean, he played at World Juniors. He, he's seen it kind of all levels. He played in the NCAA, so he knows what it's like to make that jump from the collegiate level as well. Uh, and then Rissmiller, I mean, he had a very long, successful career full of personal accolades and, and team accolades in the American Hockey League which is the primary developmental league for the National Hockey League. So I think these guys know what they're talking about. I think they're pretty experienced. I think they're pretty experienced. And I'm interested, I'm interested to ask Eric about Lindy Ruff, obviously, because he spent, a, I think, a year and a half or so uh, with Lindy in Buffalo towards the end of Lindy's tenure there. And, and um, you know, Patrick as well. I really want to find out more about what he learned in the American Hockey League. Aside from chatting with some friends you haven't seen in a while, I mean, what are you looking forward to learning more on the podcast? Uh, just what goes on behind the scenes, because, you know, when we cover development camp, we're like actively involved. We get the schedule and we just go where we have to go. We talk to the players that, you know, we need to talk to. But it's not just like, you know, here's a piece of paper with where everyone needs to be. There's really there's a lot of thought that goes behind every single decision, whether it's, you know, uh, what type of activity they do off the ice, how they pair up players particularly off the ice, because what comes natural to these guys is being on the ice. So there is a real emphasis on, you know, team building off of the ice as well. So uh, I just looking forward to getting a little bit of insight into to how it all comes together. Yeah. And I think development camps are a perfect time to kind of get the players uncomfortable a bit. Yep. And then once you have them in the system a while, you're trying to get them comfortable and you're trying yeah. to kind of, so you want to see what you have put them in some adverse situations, and then you want to build them up. Uh, and you really build a relationship through player development. And like I said before, uh, I think that this is integral to the yeah. success of the New Jersey Devils moving forward because, like you mentioned, you drafted the kids. What comes next? So with that, uh, let's get to our guests now, player development coaches Eric Weinrich and Patrick Rissmiller. Guys, welcome to the pod. We're glad to have you. It's exciting to kind of get to know a little bit more about player development. So I'm going to kick it off really quick. 
what is player development? Just define it for some fans that maybe don't pay much attention to the finer details of how you build a roster and develop a roster. Uh, Eric, let's start with you. Just give us a little overview of some of the stuff that you do. All right. Well, I think this is something that's evolved in like probably the last five years. And, uh, you know, Patrick and I, the player development was basically the American league coaches that, you know, they developed the guys, but nowadays, um, every team hires a staff who, uh, from when a kid gets drafted, um, we're in contact with each player and, uh, their coaches, um, you know, maybe if they live with a billet family or uh, their agents or wherever they're at, um, we're visiting them, uh, keeping in contact through email and text messaging, phone calls, uh, whatever's the easiest way to, to get it done. And um, um, so we're just kind of keeping tabs on their progress and making sure that they're on the right path, uh, you know, as their uh, development progresses. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a, an interesting, um, uh, development, if you will, uh, that's happened in our sport. And, um, it's something that, uh, you know, I think has really helped the players progress, uh, quicker maybe in, uh, um, their progression from amateur to a professional player. What about you, Patrick? How do you sort of see that role? It much the same. I think we, we, Eric and myself and Clemmer like to use the word mentorship uh, between the three of us. I know Clemmer does with, deals with the goalies, but, you know, we've all played in the NHL in varying levels from Winos, you know, a thousand plus games and it's down to probably me, but mentorship and help these guys out. We've, we've been through a lot and seen a lot. Um, and whether it's coaching, playing, and and uh, obviously, you know, being a little bit older than some of these guys, because when everybody's 18, we all knew it all, right? So Naturally. Yeah, exactly. Help them out, guide them in the right path, uh, you know, from anything, from whether they're just calling to show you hear a little bit about some issues they're having with the coach to something on the ice or even at home, uh, away from the rink, whether it's cooking or anything. So someone for them to lean on. And then in return, you know, our focus is on improving, helping them improve and reach their goal of making the NHL. So anytime the guys make the NHL, it always, uh, you know, it's kind of what our, our reward on our end now. I'm glad you mentioned the cooking thing and we'll get back to that later because I remember a development camp, my first development camp with you guys, we went and took a cooking class. So we will get to that uh, in a little bit, but I guess what I want to know, you know, Staying involved in hockey seems to be something that's important to a lot of guys who have been, you know, hockey players essentially their whole lives. So, uh, Eric, for you, what made this the right choice for you in terms of what you wanted to do post-career? Like, what was the interest level in this type of role for you? Well, I went from uh, coaching to scouting, and then I kind of took a year off and didn't know what I was going to do, but, um, I had heard that there were other teams hiring, uh, former players in, in the role that, uh, Patrick and I are doing now. And it was really interesting to me because I think post-career, my favorite, uh, way of staying involved with the game was coaching. And if I wasn't gonna, um, be in that capacity 
the player development role sounded like something that would be really rewarding and it would probably check off most of the boxes of what um, I enjoyed the most post-career and trying to help a player, uh, you know, make it to the next level or, or just improve any part, you know, of his, uh, his career and, you know, maybe, um, pass on some of the, uh, the things that I had learned from other players in the past and coaches and, uh, GMs and, you know, whoever I cross paths with, uh, during my career. But, um, uh, so far it's been, it's been really rewarding. And, and like Patrick said, the uh, icing on the cake is when a kid, you know, makes the next step, whether he goes from college and has success in the American league or ultimately makes it to the NHL is what the, you know, the goal is, but, um, uh, that's our small reward for, uh, what we're doing at the moment. And for you, Riss, what was your path to this role? Uh, well, I played, I, I finished my career overseas, uh, in Italy, actually, for, in, I knew I wanted to get involved and stay involved. Like you say, it's kind of everything we all know, you know, you play it as a kid for the love of the game, really. And fortunate to have a career out of it afterward and uh, I knew kind of this was a role I wanted just because I like Eric said um, I like the idea of helping the kids and working with the kids and it gives you a little flexibility of being home um, and I got young kids so yeah and it was a good match and you know I just pounded the pavement a bit when I was overseas uh, honestly in between my seasons over there when I'd be home and uh, like all old coaches, GMs, players, you name it. And uh, I was fortunate to get into this role. But it's like the idea of, of the fact that, you know, people helped me in my path in my career. And I know how it was in home. And there wasn't as much of the player development around when I was there. But there was always people there to help you out and guide you a little bit. And I think some of the guys appreciate that now, a little bit of feedback. And it's not just drafted and then silence until they show up for camp. But now they have a little bit of a, you know, no intermediary between the team and being drafted and, and trying to help them get to where they want to go. So it's been a lot of fun and uh, I really enjoy it. Patrick, I wanted to follow up. It led right into a perfect question for me, which was I wanted to know specifically, you mentioned a few people helped you along the way. Player development has changed, obviously, over the years. You mentioned that as well. But who specifically kind of helped you when you were developing your career? You had a long, successful American Hockey League career. I mean, you played a lot of games. A lot of players don't do that. So I'm just wondering who helped you along the way specifically. Yeah, I mean, like Eric, I, I mean, first and foremost, I'd point to American League coaches because then and it was I started in Cleveland with Roy Somers, still coach in the American League, and David Cuniff. And uh, they, those guys were our development guys, and they were on the ice as long as he wanted to be, whether it was before or after. And they were kind of the ones that paved the way, I'd say, for me. Um, and that's kind of how it was. And obviously, it's a wall where there's more coaches around and more development for people. But certainly at the pro level, they were my first coaches, and I was with them for the, f- the first three-plus years in the American League. And, um, you know, just probably they put time on, time on the ice with myself and anyone else that was out there. And, and that's, that's probably where it all started. Uh, speaking of former coaches, Eric, uh, you had Lindy Ruff 
for one of your years there. I, I'm interested, just want to ask you about your relationship with him and in, in, in terms of uh, what you expect his role to be with player development, what he thinks about player development, uh, any memories of him or stories? Um, well, when I was uh, working for Buffalo and, and Lindy was the head coach there, I got to, to sit in uh, a lot of the coaches' meetings with him. And uh, um, I thought, you know, Lindy's approach was really interesting. You know, he's a pretty cerebral guy and um, he's got a great wit. So uh, the way he comes across to, um, for me was, uh, was pretty interesting. And I think, you, you know, he, he's a real player's coach. And um, he just, uh, he has interesting ideas about the game. You know, he's not, um, although he came from the old school, you know, I think he has some new world uh, ideas about the game and he's always evolving. And um, I just like the way he handled players and the way he talked to players. And I think uh, a lot of the players are going to enjoy um, his uh, communication skills and, you know, just his relationship with, with the guys on the team and, and how he handles, uh, you know, the different egos and, uh, and personalities on the team. I, I really think he, he does a great job with that, and that's why I think he has a lot of success. You know, you guys – excuse me, you guys are often, you know, I guess, Riss, it was you who said that you're kind of that intermediary between the team and the player while they're waiting to, you know, make the NHL. So I'm just wondering, are players receptive to that? Is there a type of player who doesn't want that contact? And is there sort of a balance where you don't want to make them feel like you're constantly watching them? So what's that kind of balance like? Yeah, uh, I'll go first, I guess. Yeah, I mean... They're all receptive, mm-hmm. but, you know, like any 18, 19-year-old kid, everyone's different maturity-wise, right? So, I mean, I definitely, this would just be year six for us. It, it's definitely evolved. And, I mean, I know guys that I spoke to when they were 18, and they wouldn't say much, but it's going good or, you know, it's fine. And, and you know, and then as you get to know them, though, they, I think they start to trust you a little bit, and they talk a little bit more, and they open up a little bit more. And, naturally they grow up a little bit more and then you start to see more questions or they want more feedback and, and they, they become, I would almost say even a little bit more open to it. But I mean, I never run into any problems where the guys don't want us around. I think they appreciate it, but I think you do have to be careful not, you know, you don't want to be hovering over them or that type because, you know, you know, you're not their father, (laughs) but but you, you know, they, get, they do have to do a little growth on their own too. So, you know, you, you, you try to guide them and steer them in the right direction and help them in whether it's video, phone calls, uh, watching them play, you know, meet talk, like Eric said, talking to all different people that are they're surrounded by and you get all the information. Like I said, I think over time, I mean, you know, like we, we got the guys drafted this year. We've never met any of them because we haven't seen them. But you're starting to build that relationship right away. And then you see over time it, it becomes – a little bit more open for some and some guys are very open to begin with. So it is varying levels, but everybody's receptive and it always changes over the course of time. Eric, I'm wondering for you, you know, you particularly work with the defensemen and that makes me think about, you know, Ty Smith's first training camp where, you know, it was captured on tape just how disappointed he was that he did not make the NHL roster. And then again, the next year, the same thing happened. 
is that where you can step in and talk to a player like that who clearly was quite upset that he didn't make the team but understands that it's part of the development as well do you play a role there where maybe the coaches and management can't <laughs> it's funny you say that Amanda yeah because um I think I had about 10 trips in the first two months after Ty went back to uh, Spokane and um I think you know I don't know how much of a role I played in uh you know, what happened after that but um I think as a player in that situation um if that was me having uh, that kind of support from the team that drafted you especially you know he was a high pick and a, he has a lot of expectations on himself and um I know he was really disappointed but um he went back and and handled it like a a professional and uh he went through about 10 games where, you know, he was just average every game, but um, he ended up uh, as the defenseman of the year again in uh, his league. And I think he was the top scoring defenseman. And uh, so his coaches just couldn't say enough about the way he approached the whole situation and just tried to uh, make the best of the situation. And, uh, um, you know, he had a fantastic year and it was probably a great step in his development. But um, um, I know I would have liked to have, you know, somebody from the organization around and just show that, you know, we cared about what was going on in, yeah. in his situation there. And uh, Ty, uh, as a result, Ty and I have a great relationship now. And, you know, he reaches out to me every once in a while and I keep in touch with him and um, so I think it's uh, a mutual thing now. And, uh, um, I guess that's what you're always working towards, right? The, yeah, like, yeah. What, what Riss was talking about building yeah. that trust and relationship. Yep. Yep. And I think he, you know, he's super prepared for this year and, and really focused and, you know, I think we all expect great things from him in the future. So that ability to, bounce back from that early disappointment and then turn in a good season, apply yourself. It's a great trait to have, but in player development, I'll start with you, Eric, and then then you, Patrick, if you would like to follow up on it, what is the single greatest trait a young player can have that will ultimately lead to a better jump in development? What, What is it? Is it that chip on your shoulder? Is it the ability to rebound? Is it just hard work? What is it for you? Yeah, I think it's a combination of those th- those three things that you just said. And um, Patrick can, you know, he might have a different opinion on this, but the guys that I found were the most successful were the ones that could, you know, bounce back shift to shift, not just, uh, you know, season to season, you know, like something that ba- uh, didn't go right on the shift before. It was like it never happened. And the next time they stepped on the ice, you know, it was a clean slate again. Some guys have a tough time, you know, parking those kind of distractions during a game. And, you know, it affects the way they play. But uh, I don't think Ty's that kind of a kid. I think last year he had a bunch of emotions that might have affected the way he performed in camp. But this year he's really focused and, uh, I think he he's going to be one of those guys that you know isn't going to let thing little things like that uh, affect the way he plays. 
Patrick, would you like to follow up on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I would agree. I think short memory is good, but but also, you know, to put it in a place where you can kind of draw upon it. I mean, I think for a situation like fights, you know, adversity, probably adversity he's never had in his life, right? So to him, it's the end of the world. He might get, he might, he's getting sent back, but in reality, in the long run, it's going to probably benefit him more than, than it'll ever hurt him, not just from playing long, you know, an extra year in junior maturing, but just having to, he's faced some adversity. It hasn't gone his way for a change. So it's something to drop on in the, uh, in the future. And we all know, you don't, you don't, it's tough to gain a lot of experience if you don't face some challenges and, and grow from them. And, you know, that's not the only one, you know, you see some guys really upset about not making world juniors and, and all these things. And it's tough in the moment, but I think in the long run, it's great. And the guys that have faced some adversity probably a little earlier than others, you know, might have a little bit of a step in terms of how to handle it or how to compartmentalize things and, and move on, you know, as he said, even from shift to shift. So, yeah, every, you know, and every player's different. I mean, every player's a different case. I mean, you look at Jesper Bratt, who's very interesting to me because here's a six round pick, and you wouldn't think with that. You would think with that draft pedigree that maybe he's going to need several years before he can make an impact at the NHL level. But this guy, he's well on his way to being a consistent impact player already. 13 goals as a rookie. Why was Jesper Bratt able to make that jump in his development a little bit sooner than maybe some other players with similar skill sets or um, a similar draft position? Let me first start off with his skating. <laughs> his edges and his skating. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal what he does. But also, you know, he's back home playing in Sweden. He's playing against a, a bunch against a bunch of men, which is definitely a different game. And uh, in maturity wise, you know, I think that helps. Um, but certainly, I'd start with his skating, and that, that'll. Uh, I mean, that definitely sets him apart from many guys. But then, you know, when you factor in, he's played in the Swedish league or the Allsvenskan, where it's you know, he's probably 18 playing against grown men. It, it's a challenge. So not much different than coming over here a little bit even later. But, you know, the NHL is a wide range of ages and, and people are grown and, and they'll have to play against. Obviously, he's handled it well. And, I mean, he was pegged to go to junior and I thought I would be going up to London to see him. But that changed pretty quickly. So <laughs> It's good. I it's think, good for the Devils. <laughs> I think one, one thing else to add to that is uh, – you know, maybe unlike a kid like Ty Smith or uh, uh, Mike McLeod, um, who was who they were high, you know, first round picks. Maybe the expectations weren't as quite as high on uh, Jesper, and um, he had nothing to lose, you know. And he he came in and did what he had to do, and you know he contributed right away and had success. And um, you know, he's one of those guys that everybody is like, man, how did we miss him? You know, the other teams are thinking, but somebody saw something in him and uh, um, some, one of the scouts uh, did a great job in uh, identifying a skill or two that Jesper did better than maybe some other young players um, in making the jump to a professional game. And like Pat said, you know, it doesn't hurt playing against older, stronger players the year before. And um, he has some special skills. And uh, I think, you know, those things might have just helped him make that step a little easier than some other guys. Right. So I remember my first day 
arriving in the summertime for 2017 development camp. And obviously there was excitement because Nico was there. Um, I think you guys were probably some of the first people in the franchise that I met and got to do things with. And, you know, it's very intricate what goes on during development camp. There are so many more things than what maybe fans see in terms of coming for the scrimmage. And so I know you two are heavily involved in planning out what development camp will look like. So maybe, uh, Patrick, if you can take me through what you guys, you know, talk about as what you want to see from a development camp and what's important for you guys in that very limited time. Uh, um, I mean, it's great to, well, like kind of an orientation for, for, obviously the new draft picks, you know, they don't probably know any, many people, they don't know the staff. They might, some might have never been to Jersey. Um, so you get them down there to meet people and see how we work and, and then, you know, give them some experiences, whether, you know, hopping into New York city guys have never been right. So uh, you go to New York city or you build a little camaraderie amongst the guys at top golf, um, you know, maybe you teach them, they, you know, one year we did the cooking class, but just kind of you lay it out there for them and, and they pick up what they can, but certainly, you know, you expect them to pick up a few things, whether how the organizations run, how we practice, or or just even something subtle about, you know, public transportation or whatever it is, you know. So, some of these guys haven't experienced much. Some have, but it's, uh, I would, it's like an orientation, you know, get to know the guys, get to know us, we get to know them, and they get to know their team or future teammates, hopefully. And uh, we build a little camaraderie and a little competition. I mean, there's not much evaluation going on it, right? Unless, mm-hmm. I to say, unless somebody really screws up. <laughs> but, but, you know, you're not really making a team out of it, but you can always make a good first impression with, with everybody. And, you know, and it's, hey, the equipment guys are here. Let's pick up after ourselves. No, you know, just, just a little, whatever we can have them pick up, the sooner, the sooner they do it, the better and whether, you know, clean up after yourself or, or what goes on on the ice or what Eric or I do or, or all those things. So it's, uh, I think it's a good jump start to, you know, then you, they go back to most of them to juniors or college and you kind of follow up with them along, follow up with them in, the, in their environment. And um, but at least you've kicked things off and they understand a little bit of what goes on. Eric, I'm interested in knowing, because chatting with some people in the organization, you know, I was told that you and Patrick really work on as well, you know, dividing up the team, whether it's for practice or for setting the roster for the scrimmage. What are the important decisions? And, you know, because it's not just these guys here and these guys here, there must be some sort of decision-making process. So what are you looking for when you're formulating those rosters? Um. I don't know if there's anything in particular, Amanda, but, um, you know, we, we definitely want to try to make the teams as even as possible. So, you know, everybody has a, a competitive, uh, uh, scrimmage when we get out there, but, um, there may be some guys that have some chemistry from the past. And, um, if you put some guys together like that, then, you know, things go a little smoother quickly. And, um, you know, when we go to Buffalo and they do uh, the games there, um, it's it's definitely nice to have some lines together that have, you know, just a tiny bit of chemistry. So as soon as they hit the ice there, um, you know, maybe there's some success out there. And um, But 
there's no there's no magic secret to to what's going on you know i think it's just we're interested to see every player and put them in different situations and uh it's probably more for the staff than it is for the players themselves but we want to give everybody a you know a good look and, uh, and a fair chance to show what they can do I guess one of the things I have realized from the past uh, development camps that I've been to and have covered is when you're doing things off the ice, whether it's that scavenger hunt through New York City or axe throwing or whatever cooking classes, um, is there a deliberate notion to, you know, there are lots of guys who are very good friends. Do you try and sort of keep them apart just so that they get to integrate and, and you know, it's not as comfortable? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that that is definitely one thing that we, uh, we always try to do. Um, you know, there are guys that have been buddies for, you know, longer than we know when they were kids. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Euros always seem to hang together, especially the Russian guys. And, um, you know, obviously the language barrier is, is tough sometimes, but, uh, I don't know, for some reason, uh, Patrick Scott and Amy always stick me with the Russians. So I don't know that how that works out. Um, I guess because I've been over there the most. But um, anyway, it, it usually works out good. And luckily we have a few staff members who, um, yeah. you know, have some experience in different languages and uh, some Russian. And uh, that definitely helps. So uh, there is a method to that madness for sure. And risk for you. Um, were you on that scavenger hunt where uh, everyone hopped on the subway and went to New York City? And I think maybe it was raining. What was that like? And how did the guys experience that? I was all for it. I, I like <laughs> I love New York City. And, uh, it's fun. I mean, it's just like you get some of these guys that are, you know, bright eyed. They're like, wow, the city. But, uh, you know, it's take them on the, the subway, you know, you see all walks of life in that place. Right. So honestly, it's some things guys have never seen before. So it's fun. But like Eric said, you, you got to break up the group a little bit and build a little camaraderie amongst other guys and have keep kids get out of their comfort zone a little bit. And then also, you know, there's always a little competition in everything we do because ultimately the game's a competition and in reality, they're all end up competing against each other to, to play. So it's friendly um, but there's certainly an underlying theme and, 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 you know, plan for it all. Who's the most competitive guy off the ice in one of your, you know, whether it's the ping pong or anything you have set up, is there someone that sticks out to you that just like really wants to win everything? I would say Smitty, uh, Ty Smith for me, he's the guy that comes to mind right away. He's, he's quietly competitive and, and dialed in and all, everything he does. Um, I, most of the guys generally are. I think yeah. in that environment, it kind of brings out the best in everyone. And, you know, everyone wants to win, right? So, What was more popular, cooking class or axe throwing? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, one year we, we did the cooking class. And then yeah, <laughs> probably axe throwing because I, I remember the cooking class. Things got a little delayed and <laughs> poor young guys were starving. You know, <laughs> they were waiting to eat. They were dying to eat, so... 
They're growing, they're growing boys too. You got to feed them. (laughs) I I absolutely love this, this off ice stuff. It's it's great. And kind of gives you a little bit of a view that it's more than just the on ice stuff, but forgive me. I do have a question about the X's and O's. I I had an opportunity to sit with a player development coach for another organization, like during one of these development camps. And he had a unique kind of no grading system where, you know, positive player, negative player. This is what I want to talk about here. When you actually get those physical, um, you know, time on site to watch these young players play. Do you guys have a particular grading system or a chart or notes or how do you kind of handle that? Or are you just watching the hockey? You don't want to miss anything or, you know, how do you handle those situations? Um, yeah, I, go, ahead. go ahead, Russ. Oh. Well, I, I mean, uh, why, I mean, you go to the games and you, I mean, I really focus on the guys, you know, any game we go to, it involves one of our prospects. So we're not on the, on the pavement like the amateur guys are. Um, there's always a couple guys you'll want to see, but focus on our guys and their play, and and I always try to look for ways that I think can help them improve um, on the game. Um, and there's usually some sort of foundation they have that if they put these pieces together, it usually is when they're playing their best hockey. So we kind of build off some of that stuff. Um, you know, whether it's a guy that likes to, you know, he's a few hits or a few shots or so we'll, we'll kind of look at what we think he can improve on. We'll also look at areas of, you know, did you play to your strengths? Like maybe, you know, if you're a big guy who likes to play down low with the puck, you know, are you protecting it well, or you get into the net and versus say, you know, someone that's going to be carrying the puck through the middle of the ice. Um, so, you know, every kid is different. Every player is a little different, but, it's, uh, they all have their strengths and, you know, we try to build on those as well as improve the weaknesses in, in subtle areas too. Um, you know, they, they get a lot of film, they get a lot of coaching from their coaches that they're with, but you know, we have people miss some things and, you know, there's always a little ways to improve. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, um, we use the same kind of a, a rating system that the amateur scouts do and the pro scouts do and, Um, So there's ways that we can grade the guys every time we uh, watch them play in a game. And and then uh, the rest of the staff has the ability to, you know, check out our report on the player and, um, and, you know, maybe compare it to what they're seeing and, and we can see what they're reporting on as well. So um, it's pretty extensive during the season and, uh, um, it's a good way for everybody to um, share notes on players and, and keep track of their progress. Obviously, this year, things were very different in that there was no development camp. Your draft was in October, whatever it was, instead of in June. So you can't bring all these young guys together, particularly, you know, those who are brand new to the team. So what were your challenges there? And maybe, you know, what did you guys do instead? Or what did you feel you could do instead just to make sure, particularly that these new guys felt welcome? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, this season sort of um, made us adopt uh, some different ways of communication and, and maybe enhanced uh, that mm-hmm. in a positive way. Um, Amanda, you know, like, what we're doing right now is, is one of the ways that we've all been able to stay in contact and, uh, 
you know, put a face to some words and, uh, you know, because the players aren't actually in a season, a lot of them are just training on their own or with some friends. Um, it's different, you know, I mean, it's a lot harder to keep track of, of what they're up to. So, you know, uh, Patrick and, and Scott and I have been, uh, trying to communicate with the guys once or twice a week just to see what they're up to and see if there's any way we can, you know, help them with their training or their diet or just staying focused. And, um, you know, we've been reporting back to the organization, to Tom and, and Dan McKinnon, and um, the ownership's really uh, interested in what all the guys are or how they're, you know, sticking with their training and preparing for whatever season ahead of them. So, uh, you know, there's been, it's kind of an adaptation to what we've done in the past, but, um, I think in the future, it's, it's going to make things a little different, a little easier maybe, um, and what we do and, and maybe instead of some trips here and there, we can just talk to guys on a zoom call instead, you know, and, uh, um, so those are things that I think have been a positive in all this, but ultimately we'd all love to be going to see the guys in person. Chris, what about you when it comes to, you know, talking to players, you know, Eric said like once or twice a week, what are you encouraging these young guys with right now, particularly the ones who have no season? I, you know, the Ontario hockey league hasn't played Quebec keeps getting paused. I mean, what are you telling them right now? Well, I mean, it's tough, you know, but I mean, I, you try to just tell them to take advantage of the time they have. Mm-hmm. But for some of these guys, it's actually going to be very beneficial because you almost get it. I mean, what are we, eight, nine months into this? Yeah. Um, you know, just to mature or mentally or physically. So, you know, we got, well, Graham Clark and Dawson, are, they're out there at the World Juniors, so they're playing, although they're quarantining at the moment. Yeah. You know, it's just to take advantage of the time. I mean, it, it's long and even in a regular summer working out gets old for all of us that want to play. We always want to play, but you know, this is a stretch that they're never going to have again. And I think it's going to be beneficial for some in the long run, just because, you know, instead of trying to get stronger and quicker and, and you only have that time in June and July and August, they've now had since April. So it's, uh, but it's not easy. And right now, you know, we have some of our college kids playing, but games get canceled. I was in touch with the guy that or Slain out of Yukon, you know, one day they're supposed to play Saturday and then, you know, say it's canceled. So or Ar- Arnie's down at Penn State and, you know, they're playing, but they've struggled, right? So it's, Although he did have a great night, uh, was it last night? He had two yeah, goals, yeah. I believe. Yeah. He got a couple goals, they got a win. But, you know, it's not easy to, you know, they all think they're ready to play and then it gets canceled the day before or two days. Providence has a yet to play. They're still playing tonight, but. You know, you got to be flexible, not much different than any the rest of the society. You got to be flexible and you got to, you know, roll with it a little bit. But it's certainly for them taking advantage of the time and, um, you know, being prepared for whenever it does come. Well, I imagine that you're looking forward to the day where a training camp starts and you can be there and, you know, get on the ice. I, I, I bet that's something you're just really looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. I think we all want to skate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, battling, you know, a little bit of normalcy in all of our lives would be nice, but we kind of work through what we can. Um, 
but certainly getting down to a camp and, and actually getting to meet these players in person and even talk to their coaches in person will, will certainly be nice. But you know, some of the guys are still playing, so we can catch up on video and we can still work with them here in, you know, in a different capacity. But like Eric said, and I think, you know, even in the real world, right, there's a lot of things that have transpired that's probably going to change things just a little bit moving forward. Well, guys, I mean, there's been a lot of buzz uh, all offseason about some of these new young players that are coming in, building on the structure and some of the guys that you've uh, already been working with that are already in place. So a lot of excitement and player development is obviously one of the backbones of an organization and is going to really help a team have sustained success. Really appreciate you guys joining us on the podcast and kind of peeling back the curtain a little bit and letting us know what you do. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having us. Well, Amanda, once again, not disappointing. Our guests, a lot of fun, good conversation, learn some new things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, having known these guys for a couple of years, I knew that they were going to give, you know, our fan base exactly what they wanted is to really not be shy and pulling back the curtain and talking about what decisions they do and don't have to make. And, um, and the really important relationship that these guys behind the scenes that aren't necessarily um, faces that our fan base would know um, just walking down the street, but just how integral they are in the teams that end up being the New Jersey Devils. Yeah, I thought the best part of the interview was Eric talking about Ty Smith. And I thought that was also the most revealing because he not only just said, yeah, he was disappointed, but he kind of went into, well, you know, he, went, he had a slump for a little bit and he mm-hmm. kind of had to work through it and then came back and rebounded. And we like that about him, how he can kind of come back and bounce back and shift to shift, how that, how important that is for a young player to be able to bounce back shift to shift, particularly defensemen. I liked what they had to say about that. Love talking about development camp, the cooking show and, and the axe throwing. Ridiculous. And it's, it's, <laughs> Ridiculous, crazy, fun, awesome team building. And it's in, and that's very important to get uh, these young players into your system, feeling good about it and wanting to work hard as members of the organization. Anything else stick out to you? I mean, just to piggyback off what you said in terms of uh, Eric Weinrich talking uh, about Ty Smith, I think what was really key in that conversation is that he said, I must have gone up there about 10 times in the first couple of weeks once Ty got sent back to Spokane, um, just to be a presence. Didn't need to talk to him, just needed to be there to let him know that despite this huge disappointment for Ty, um, the franchise was still behind him. I thought that was really an important piece that he just sort of mentioned on the fly. Oh, and then casually Ty Smith becomes... CHL defense. Yeah, exactly. Just casually. I think he rebounded just fine from that. I also liked what they had to say about Jesper Bratt and how they fully expected him to go to juniors. Thought, you know, Riss Miller thought, hey, I'm going to be going up to London. I'm going to go see him play. No, no, he's just going to make the jump to the NHL. So I was kind of interesting. But now we get to talk about uh, someone else who has some experience coaching, another inspiring story. Uh, and so we bring in our very own Catherine Bogart. And Catherine's going to tee up our next guest, but I think Devils fans are going to want to listen to this. Thanks, Chris and Amanda. Good to be on here with you guys. Today we are talking to Josh Pauls. He is a sled hockey player. He is actually the captain of the U.S. national sled hockey team. He is a three-time Paralympian and has won gold at each Paralympics that he has played in. That's a very hard thing to do in any discipline or any sport. So he is definitely someone who is considered a goat in the sled hockey world. 
He is a proud New Jersey native, and we had a discussion with him talking about not only how he got his start in sled hockey, but how he uses his platform to be the inspiration of change for others. Josh, when did you first get your love for the sport of hockey and for sled hockey? I mean, I think my love for the game came from my parents, for sure. I mean, my dad loved watching the Devils on TV. My mom, uh, actually, she has a a nice uh, white and green John McClain jersey still that uh, she keeps in the closet. And so, like, it set me right up with uh, the love for hockey. And I remember my first vivid memory of of any kind of hockey at all was watching a devil. My dad was watching a devil's game, and I looked at it, and I was like, what's that? And he started explaining some of the rules and how, you know, icing is way different than the icing I had had as a kid. So um, that was kind of where my start came. And then uh, eventually, uh, right around 10 years old, I decided I wanted to play. And it's not always the easiest when you're missing both legs below the knee, but uh, team opened up in my area called the Woodbridge Warriors. And that was kind of where I got my start in sled hockey. And I remember just hopping on the ice for the first time and realizing that, you know, Hey, I'm not any good at this, but you know, maybe if I just have some fun, I mean, it's the game that I love watching. So why don't I want to play it? When you first learned how to play sled hockey, what was the moment that really sucked you in that you were like, wow, okay, I really need to keep following this passion? That's a good question. I think for the most part, it was really getting to the point where I was trying out for the junior national team. uh, That was an under 20 team at the time. And uh, I didn't make it at all. I'm probably one of the worst players on the ice. And I sat there and I was like, you know what, maybe I need to work a little bit harder because I'm not that far off and I'm still pretty young compared to some of these guys out here. So uh, I ended up working my tail off and making my way onto that team uh, the next year. And I mean, it was such a great experience and going, I know one vivid memory I've got from the 2008 world championships in Marlboro, Massachusetts. I remember our team had a, a function right around their world championship. And so I got to see the big boy U S team playing Norway, who had one of the best players in the world, who's almost probably the best player in the world by a considerable margin at that time. And I remember watching those guys live and like, man, I could be on the ice with those guys one day soon. And I ended up making it the very next year. So I don't think I quite knew what I was getting into, but it was definitely one of the moments of, I want to be like them. When you're on the ice and you're playing sled hockey, besides like a world championship or Paralympics, whatever, when you're just playing the sport that you love, what is your favorite part about the sport? The locker room, hands down. I mean, it's going to keep me coming back to to hockey, whether it's stand up, whether it's sled, no matter what kind it is, it's the bond you build. I mean, uh, right now for our St. Louis team, I'm kind of playing and coaching and exactly the most fun trying to have to coach your a person who's your teammate. But for me, I mean, it's, it's just getting the jokes, you know, while I'm trying to explain a drill, guys are cracking jokes. And, you know, at first I started, I was like, Oh, this is kind of dumb. I don't want to have to uh, talk over these guys, but you realize that's what keeps you coming back. And so for me, I mean, on the ice, you know, scoring a goal is next to next to nothing. I mean, it's so fun, but it's the locker room that's going to keep me coming back when my shoulders are too sore or, you know, when I don't feel like waking up in the morning. Jack Wallace, your teammate on the national team and also your teammate at the 2018 Paralympics, said that his career started because he was inspired by you and your path. You won gold at the 2010 Paralympics and you brought your medal back to that same program that he was playing for as well. And he saw that and thought, okay, maybe I can make this work for myself. 
do you remember meeting Jack? And what do you remember about bringing back that medal that first time in 2010 when you first won gold? Oh man. I mean, that medal was, is really special. It still is to this day because, um, I was on the team in 2009 that we won a world championship. And then at tryouts in July, that next year, uh, I got cut. And so for me, it was, uh, tough to get sent back down basically to the junior national team. But the coaches told me that, Hey, it's the Paralympic year. We need guys that are bigger, stronger, faster. And that's just what you got. So I said, you know what, I'm going to work my tail off. And I remember driving back home from, it was from in Rochester, New York, driving back home to New Jersey. My dad was like, well, if you don't like it, just go prove them wrong. And so I think that's what I tried to do. Um, it's not exactly a, the path that many people can follow because we had a guy have a surprise retirement and I uh, ended up beating a couple other guys out for spots later in, in that year. But um, I remember coming back and being able to show everybody like say, Hey, this is what hard work gets you. And, you know, the meet Jack and, and show him the medal. I know uh, when he first, he always tells the story that uh, he played a game that I came to and he needed some sticks. So I let him borrow my backup sticks and, I think he scored a hat trick with him. Um, it was definitely not the sticks. It was probably Jack. But <laughs> for me, I think that was just, it was a really cool moment because then you got to see some of the the talent that came out in him and you say, well, maybe he has a chance. I mean, he was still really young at the time, but he was also really young in 2018. And we all saw how well that went. So he's such a force and, you know, to be able to play that small part in, in that, in his career and just give him a little bit of a spark. I mean, he's, he's a driven individual. He's going to, He's gonna, he was going to make the national team whether I came back with a gold medal or not. But for him, I think it was, it was a nice moment to say, hey, this is what, this, what hard work can get you. And with both you and Jack playing for that same program in New Jersey, how have you seen sled hockey grow throughout the state of New Jersey, not only when you were playing in that program, but now? I mean, sled's grown, grown just exponentially. I mean, we were, we had a great league in New Jersey. I think that's still operating. Um, it was all youth teams. Um, we had some in Pennsylvania, we had like three in New Jersey, we had a couple in Maryland. So we had a whole East coast thing going on. And, um, I mean, that was, that was huge. And so to have a youth league and adult league, and then, uh, have Paralympians that are able to, to come from those areas, um, not only does that get you a little bit variety, but it also sometimes gets you funding because ultimately most sled teams are 501 C3s that, you know, rely on people to give donations. Right. And anybody that has a disability knows it's kind of expensive sometimes um, with the expense of sports, especially like hockey. I mean, ultimately sometimes it comes down to, can we put him in hockey or can we get him a wheelchair or get him a, a foot that he needs for everyday use? So um, I mean, sometimes tough decisions can have to be made, but the way that youth hockey and sled hockey has grown, I think it's not only more available, but it's also more public. And so more people are willing to give their time to, you know, add to high level coaching, but it's also more people are willing to, to watch it. And that's going to help grow it as well. Speaking on that representation really helps show people that Sled hockey is awesome. It's you're able to participate. It's a huge part of this hockey world. How do you feel as a role model for this sport and for the state of New Jersey as a national team member and the captain of the national team? I mean, it, representation, representation matters. I think we all saw that when Kamala Harris uh, was voted in as vice president elect a couple of weeks ago. I mean, people, you don't know what's, what's possible unless you can see that in somebody else. And so for me, 
Um, I mean, I think we're at a point where there's nobody that has a disability in, you know, hockey ops around the league. There's not a lot of people with disabilities, you know, in the national league office or in high level hockey positions. So for me, I think it's one, I want to be an athlete and I want to show people that, you know, just because you have a disability doesn't mean there's not a way to play your favorite sport. And there's not a way to excel at your favorite sport. If you have the drive, if you have the, the desire, if you have the time to commit to it, um, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but it, it means the world to, I mean, hopefully be a role model. I'm trying to do the best I can, but I mean, aren't we all? So for me to be able to, to be the captain, I think it comes with a little bit more responsibility, but um, I, I think that's something that I enjoy. It's an added challenge and something that keeps keeps waking me up in the morning to to go be a little bit better. So I think representation is huge and the more we can get of that, the better, but even just having more people exposed to the sport, I think is great because I've never met anybody that's watched a sled hockey game and went, Oh, that's all right. That was kind of <laughs> cool. Like they're always hooked They're That's always the first thing anybody says is, Oh my gosh, did you see them running into each other? Like NHL players? Yeah. Hey, the glass moves a little bit when we're getting checked in the boards, those boards don't move. They're held up by metal. So uh, we take some pretty good licks, especially going, you know, 25 miles an hour. And so I think it's just, it's such a great thing to see how the sport's grown, but I think there's a lot of room for improvement, just like anything. For someone who's looking into sled hockey and really is considering joining the sport and learning how to play, what advice do you have for someone who's considering making the switch over to sled hockey, maybe from a different sport or from not even playing a sport yet? I mean, I think the biggest thing that I can tell you is we've seen so many war veterans like Rico Roman, Ralph D. Quebec, Travis Dodson, Josh Hargis. Um, we've way too many on the team now that I, I, it's hard to name them all, but a lot of these guys didn't have backgrounds in hockey and they have made it to a national team level. So you never really know where a sport's going to go until you try it. And when I first tried sled hockey, I hopped on a sled and I hated it. Absolutely. It was just like, no, thank you. This is not for me. And a couple of years later, a team came back closer. My parents told me to try it one more time. And I did, and I'm glad I did. Um, so really you should give it a try. You're not going to be great the first time out. Um, everybody that hops in a sled thinks, oh, well, this is pretty easy. You're sitting down. You don't even have to stand up and play hockey. That's, that's no problem, but it's a lot harder than you. It's, it's going to be a challenge, but I guarantee you that if you find a great group of people, just like any hockey locker room, you're going to want to stay just like I said at the beginning of this, it's the people you play with is really what keeps you coming back. Just, but that's the same for any sport. This is a loaded question, but what has sled hockey brought into your life? Oh man. Um, I mean, sled hockey's brought me everything. I mean, it, it, it caused me to work harder when I didn't feel like it. It caused me to, it gave me a purpose to get up in the morning. It gave me a reason to, to, use my competitiveness, I think is a huge thing. Cause I'm an immensely competitive guy. My parents taught me, raised me that way. And, you know, not to have an outlet for that it's challenging. And so, I mean, sled hockey's given me anything, everything. I wouldn't have moved out to St. Louis, uh, without sled hockey. I wouldn't be playing for the team and with the, the guys that I love playing with all the time. I wouldn't have met my fiance. Like there's a whole lot of things that can just kind of stem from, you know, my parents saying, why don't you just give this one more try and me sitting there going, all right, yeah. With International Day of Persons with Disabilities, how important is it to have these days to recognize and to unite people instead of maybe not highlighting people with disabilities, whether it's playing sled hockey or a different 
mental disability. Yeah. I mean, I think you touched on it. There's all kinds of disabilities out there, right? So some are just, I think it's really easy. I wear shorts all the time, so it's pretty easy to see my disability, but I think a lot of people su- either suffer in silence or have to deal with it in, in some way that most people can't see. And so, I mean, I think these days are really important as long as people pay attention to them because they're only as effective as the people that actually look for them are, right? So for me, I think you need people to, to be aware of them. And I think it's a matter of just education because people with disabilities are one of the lowest represented populations of minorities. I mean, when you think of it, when I think of a minority, you don't ever think of disability. So I think that's something we're working to change and really show that, you know, we're not going anywhere. Um, we're, people with disabilities are going to exist. You're just going to have to get used to it. And really, it's just finding ways to, for me, to figure out what qualities we can bring out in the person rather than the disability. And uh, some people like the person first language. I always identify with just being disabled. Just That's just the easiest thing for me to say. But I, I really do think it comes down to seeing the person first. So I get a lot of times people are coming up going, hey, wow, those are really cool legs. And a lot of times I want to sit, I sit there and go, hey, I'm Josh. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm here still. Like they're not, I mean, yes, they're turned on. They have a computer chip in them. They're running right now. But I'm like here, you can talk to me. So I don't ever have a problem explaining on how things work or what these legs do. But, you know, I think for anybody that's going to, to watch this video, I mean, if you see somebody hey, ask a question. They may not be receptive to it because not everybody is, but at the very least, you got to acknowledge them as a person first. Say, hey, I'm Tom or hey, I'm Josh. I just wanted to learn a little bit more because I'm not totally familiar. I think it's all about how we ask the questions and asking the right questions rather than, whoa, look at that. Very true. It's very true. My last question for you, going back a little bit, you're from New Jersey, even though you're not living there right now. What does that state mean to you? And what does it mean to you to be from New Jersey? I mean, first of all, their Twitter account is next to none. Like they're my favorite. One of my favorite followers on Twitter is the government account. I mean, they just they're tweeting up a storm all the time. But I mean, New Jersey, it's it's just a, it's a character trait, if anything. I mean, it's it's a fast paced. It, it's so great. I mean, it's given me so much. Um, I think the biggest thing I miss is pork roll or Taylor ham. However, you sit there on the fence with that, but I mean, it's such a great state. It's such a community, even though there's, you know, millions of people living there. And I think the biggest thing I miss from New Jersey is, you know, being able to just one, go visit my parents whenever I want, but just having that sense of community with your family. And then even the devils, I mean, they've treated us like gold every time we've been back and, um, I know I've weaseled uh, Matt Laughlin to try to get me tickets to some games here in St. Louis. So um, I'm really grateful for that. But, you know, it's it, everybody treats you like family. And I think that's the best part of it. Wow. Great conversation, Catherine. As always, a fantastic guest, very inspiring story. And of course, massive Devils fan. So we're glad to have him on the show. Glad to have him on Speaking of the Devils. Big Devils fan and his whole family, they're big Devils fans too. So that's even a bigger win on all of our books. But hopefully Josh will be back in New Jersey soon to come to a game once it's safe to do so again. And hopefully he can meet some more Devils fans who I'm sure are now big fans of his. I have one story about him. Um, We were in St. Louis, I want to say like two years ago, maybe. And he got to come into the devil's locker room. I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but he had his gold medal with him and 
he was literally like the most popular guy in the entire room because everyone just like wanted to touch it and wear it and talk to him. And I, I, you know, that must've been really cool for a guy to go into a room of a team that he's grown up loving and all the, they just want to know about him. A gold medal is a gold medal. Exactly. No matter what. what. (laughs) Everyone wants to see one of those gold medals up close. And like you said, it's a good thing to like be on the other side for once. You you grew up idolizing these people and now they're idolizing you. (laughs) And I will tell you one thing, Catherine, I 100% took about 50 different photos, not with my camera, with like, you know, like Miles would be like, hey, can you take a picture? You know, like they wanted a picture. You became team photographer exactly. for, the night for Josh Paul. I was like, You're guys, I do have a job to do. <laughs> He's a great guy though. And we're just so happy that over the past two weeks, we were able to focus on Jack Wallace and Josh Paul's stories, both New Jersey sled hockey players, both critical to winning the most recent gold medal for the U.S. and awesome representatives of the sport in general. Yeah, really appreciate you bringing that to us, uh, Catherine. And again, inspirational story, great human. Well, that'll do it for uh, this episode of our Speak of the Devils podcast. We hope that you enjoyed. Uh, For Catherine Bogart and Amanda Stein, I'm Chris Westcott. We'll see you again next Monday. Visit NewJerseyDevils.com slash podcast for more.